that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, joined today by my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B. Patrick O'Boyle, and the Bella Bensonhurst, Miss Rosella Rago. First of all, Ro, good to be back together. Long time since we've been able to record together. I know. I, I, I miss you guys. And, you know, now that Pat's viral, I mean, it's just, it's been very hard to... to COVID was viral, too. That wasn't a good thing. <laughs> That's absolutely right. I got viral. a little bit of a beating up on that. Yeah, comment. not always a good thing. Pat, I don't think you should concern yourself with anyone who hasn't been viewed by two million people anymore. <laughs> That's a new class of people only. There's a lot of people. You can't care about these peasants and what. <laughs> no, but they say stuff that aggravates me. I hate inaccuracies. Yeah, it's a big deal for you. Execute me on the hill of truth. Yes, fair. Wow. But when you're going to hang me on misperceptions, ignorances, if that's a word, nonsensical i mean it was it was it was just nonsense and it's like that corporal mercy the corporal work of mercy to was it educate the ignorant teach the ignorant i there were just some comments there that had no basis in fact if you want to debate me on fact debate me on fact but you, you got to have your facts yeah that's fair enough speaking of mercy it's may 1st which means it's the marion month we've got uh Lots of big celebrations coming up, not to mention yours, Pat. Yes. In uh, at the end of the month, May 20th, for Our Lady of Sacramento. And Eric Uchera, who is our guest today, is an integral part of that celebration. He's a supporter. He's a donor. He's a carrier. Yeah, he's a carrier. And he's more. He's a listener. He's an author. What more could you want a human being? That's very true. He's uh, he's done a lot of good. And you guys are related, correct? Is that another? Or no, no we ha- hold on a minute, because everybody makes jokes about this. This is a serious thing. His family comes from the town of Sessicilento. And San Mango is technically a frazione of Sessicilento. So he comes from a village of 200. And my grandfather's father was born and raised in a village of 400. And there's a lot of intermarriage uh, across those lines. Yeah. And the people who've been there have been there for thousands of years. Like my ancestors, the further I go back, the longer they're there. Yeah. So there's a good chance that over, I mean, the town, the records of the town go back to 994. Um, They found uh, Greek artifacts. I don't know if it's Greek or Roman artifacts in the area that goes back thousands of years. So, I mean, in a, in a gene pool of 600 people, <laughs> I think we both share, but probably we both share ancestors from, um, there's another hamlet of 80 people that is kind of triangulated with us. And I have like a second or third great grandmother. I had ancestors way back that came from there. And Eric's family, I think, probably went from there to say so. So, I mean, like I said, three towns, combined population, 680 people, 4,000 years. So numerically, the odds are in our favor that somewhere. I mean, what is it like when you get to ninth great grandparent, you have 2000 ancestors? Yeah, it's something crazy like that. Yes, I mean, I would I would say numerically, it's probably highly likely that since we have roots going back there very far, yeah, there's probably some consanguinity, of which I would be greatly honored because he's a great man. John and I are two honorary members of San Mango Chilento, so aren't yes. we all? That's true. Yes, that's true. We are. We are honorary citizens after when we were honored when? Before COVID, 2018, Before COVID. 19, yeah. And we actually have a piazza in waiting for you when you come, bro. Wow. <laughs> it's going to be Piazza Rosella. 
Oh, come on. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we're, we're I would give anything to see that. You And and you have to do me a favor and you have to take a, a huge picture and you have to mail it to the mayor of Mola Dibati. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, if you want to really create drama. We go for more than Mola does. Shame on you. Then no, go- what we'll do, we'll invite, <laughs> we'll do a real tank style. We'll invite the uh, Consiglio Comunale of Mola. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. To all come with their fascia and their... Uh, well, you're they're, creating they're, rivalry. Yeah, yeah. What do you call fascia in English? Sash. Sash. Yeah. Yeah. For our listeners who don't know, the mayors in Italy, after the Napoleonic occupation in about 1809, began to adopt the practice of wearing a sash with a green, white, and red ribbon sash, like they wore in France, a blue, white, and red ribbon sash. So the mayors in Italy wear a sash with green, white, and red, and a little, the arms, the stemma of the town on the bottom. And that's kind of what makes you... Deputy dog in Italy, right? England, they have the uh, it's a sash chain of, of office. office. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But to be fair, in Italy, and England's not much better, but like in Italy, they've created now sashes for every title holder. I mean, you know, there's sashes for everything now. So everybody's got a sash. I mean, shouldn't there be, though? Don't we all want a sash in life? I do. Well, we certainly brought it over here. If you, you go to a feast nowadays, right? You go to like a feast, a traditional feast of some Italian American community. If they're really old clubs, there's a sash for the president, sash for the vice president, sash for the treasurer, sash for the secretary, sash for the, the feast chair purse. I mean, it's it's kind then of then they became the membership uh, sashes. Yeah, it's everything. Do you remember when we had to make a sash for your feast? Nicole made it. Why don't you tell the boys and girls out there in podcast land what your wife had to make for me? See, because people don't realize this. I give John and his wife whacked out projects to make for me because they're both artists. And for some reason, they do it. <laughs> But they do great That's jobs. Love. That's love. I mean, John's designing me a T-shirt yeah. right now from Morono Ramon, but I am. I was literally was doing it until we we got on the mic. That's actually. why. That's why we're on this podium because they they picked the three most whacked out Italian Americans. We want a contest. <laughs> it's like twenty six million true. of you out there, and they said, "Let's find the three biggest wackadoodles," and me, John, and Roe won. So congratulations, guys. That's how. <laughs> but tell them yeah, about the Sash Nicole me. It has the Kumara. I don't remember what was it the first, like it was for the Katja Caval. Yeah, because in now I don't know. If, I guess this was true in Italy. I've never asked anyone, but in the New York area, New York metro area, they would use the title like Gumara of. So you were the Gumara of I don't know this statue carrier, the the wooden base of the statue. That meant that you donated it, so you were called the Godmother of. So if you were I don't know the, the cape that went on the statue. You were the you were the gumara of that or the gumbara of that. Now that goes back because in the in the traditional Latin mass in the old rite, when they would dedicate church bells, the donors of the church bells stood there like the baptismal sponsors at a baptism. Wow, like the godmother and the godfather at a baptism. So it because Italians are Italians, the title godparent was used for the donor of a specific item. So since John has been extraordinarily generous with our feast. I had him make a sash for him and his wife that had the gumara and the gumbara of the provolone because we give out provolones. We have provolone passing contests and they are the donors and therefore they are the gumara and the gumbara of the provolone. This is a real thing. This is a real thing. See, that's why we're here. <laughs> if, you, if you come out on May 20th, you'll see this. Many of you people may think this. We put it into practice. See, the stuff <laughs> that you consider really whacked out. I can't come, but do I still get a provolone? Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, we've had nasty fights over that, too. We've had all the Italian ladies like practically claw each other's eyes out. Yeah, that gets bad. 
actually. Yeah. I, but that's all the entertainment. That's what people come free. to see. I mean, you can't you can't put us in an area in a confined space with free with limited free stuff. You know, if you want to make Italian women especially go insane, put them in a in a confined space and and have some free stuff available, have it limited and watch the Hunger Games commence. <laughs> That's exactly what it feels. It's the Kajikavala Hunger Games and Pat's Feast is true. They go crazy. Well, we play games for the listeners to understand. We play games and the winners of the games either get a Brazut, the Gazakavala, Provolone, you go home with a, a large food article. Now you're out there in the middle, you know, ha ha he he ho ho. But you've never seen a 78-year-old Italian quote unquote off the boat in a competition for a piece of cheese. <laughs> no, it gets nasty. You've never ever in your life. And they're not happy losers. And no. we have we have massive cheating. Yeah, a lot of cheating goes on. So you have an Italian old lady who's thrown out of the game and then she sneaks back in and then you call her out on she goes, well, I don't know, I don't understand. I was here the whole time. I don't know what you talk about. We had two guys one year. We had a brazut throwing contest. So we had a never, very nice wrapped brazut that the guys had to throw back and forth. Like kind of like when they used to have the water balloon type contests. And the two old Italian guys, Gina Biancardi was there. She almost had to break up a fight. They they <laughs> both claimed they won. And so you guys know my trick. Don't tell the people who were there. I buy double of everything. So in case that happens. You have to. So the old Italian guys were getting in a fight. No, I, I went to the brazut. No, I went to the brazut. This is a true story. And Gina goes, oh, my God, Patrick, what am I going to do? I said, Gina, calm down. And I took out the emergency brazut that I had in a cooler. <laughs> and I said, go over and tell them, like, all's fair. And they both go home with a brazut. But really, you got to pity me, someone who's that sick that spends a big chunk of their life doing these things. <laughs> this is a big deal for you. It's a big deal. But I'm, I'm people who come up with these thoughts, we can't be playing with a full deck. No, that's fair. Because people are like, you know, drinking beers in flip flops and shorts down the shore, watching a game, fill in the blank. And we're dressed up like a medieval confraternity throwing cheese across a field. <laughs> so don't, when you put it that way, we got the big medals from Italy this year. I'm going to do a telethon episode, too, because I have, have to have thank to. all the people, including Eric, who were generous last year and supported us. People who went above and beyond. Yeah, but people have been really supportive and it's a great feast. People really enjoy it and come out. I know a lot of people are coming this year. May 20th, it's going to be uh, in Clifton, New Jersey. We're going to have all the details on our social media and on our website and stuff. I hope everybody comes. And one of the faces that we're going to see is Eric Lucera, who I think predates us in the podcast. He's been a member of the New Neighborhood from, I think it's safe to say, before we three came on. Time with, immemorial. Yes. Yeah, so, they call that Very, very early on. Yes, <laughs> time immemorial. And uh, Eric's been a great supporter of the Feast and a great member of the New Neighborhood and uh, come out and participate in a lot of the stuff we've done. And now... He and his cousin have written a book that I think is going to fascinate the entirety of our audience out there because it's really about the umbilical ties between a small place in Italy and a neighborhood here in the United States. And, and this is a topic that I think gets lost on people, how much we can track where our family came from by where they ended up in the United States, where they entered, where they lived first. And so uh, Eric and his cousin Rich, the authors of Birth of a New Bicati, in Philadelphia. So, uh, Eric, welcome to the Italian American podcast on the air after all these years of being uh, being a part of it behind the scenes. Thank you, John. It's a, it's an honor to be here. And and let me say up front, the book would not have happened were it not for the efforts of the show. Uh, it's, wow. a, it's a weekly dose of inspiration to to pursue and to document and add to our heritage. So uh -huh. I'll, thank I'll thank you. you up front. for that. Thank you very much for that. Yeah, that makes that, that makes it worthwhile. It really does. It, it's it's amazing what has come out of uh, the listenership of the show and going out and 
really getting their hands dirty in Italian American life and culture and history. And uh, you come from Philadelphia originally, correct? That's correct. But you're in Boston now. Yep. No accent uh, on either side. So no, it's true. You don't that. Have... <laughs> yes, those are two, two very distinct ones. Yes. Uh, but really, the book is a real work of love and a lot of genealogical time and effort. Tell us and uh, the audience a little bit about Picari and a little bit about the immigration of Philadelphia. What made you feel that this umbilical back and forth had a book out there? So Picari is located in, in Puglia. Uh, it's in an area, uh, northern Puglia, called Foggia, the, uh, the Mount Donian Plain, uh, mostly sort of rolling hills where there's a lot of wheat and olive trees, like most of Puglia. And I became, I had no knowledge of Picari until maybe 20, 25 years ago. I had uh, been an early adopter of Facebook uh, based on kind of where I went to school and typed my name in one day and saw a guy that looked like my grandfather with the last name and reached out to him and and turned out he was a uh, local historian, uh, Giuseppe Osvaldo Lucera. And he had uh, he had just retired and inherited a uh, a bunch of material from uh, his uncle Luigi. And he was he was the third in. Uh, line of uh, family historians from from Bikari who had written books about the village. And I got to know him and uh, he knew that I had the Ancestry.com subscription and he would occasionally reach out to me and said, hey, I need some information on this. And do you know what happened to this guy? And he was doing very personal stories about people from the village who had uh, come to America or whatever. And then one day he decided to write a book on a monument to uh, uh the folks that had died in World War One, and it had been funded by the the Bicaris Americano of Philadelphia. So he gave me a list of 150 people and said, "Hey, do you know what happened to these people?" And very luckily, I had just resigned one job and was about to start a new one, so I had about a month off and and dove into that. And when I got done all of the work, I said, "Hey, Giuseppe, I think we've at this point cataloged every immigrant from the village to America." And I said, "I." pretty good with numbers and statistics. So I was running a bunch of data and I said, I think there's an interesting book idea here. And and basically what I did was I looked at all of the data from Ancestry.com, pulled it into uh, another genealogy uh, software package, which allowed you to sort it on key variables, and then came up with a bunch of analytical data that had been supporting a lot of the stories that he had been writing about anecdotally. So these were stories that he had heard as a kid as to why people left the village. There was a fight, there was a murder, there was an unjust accusation, all of the things that you guys talk about. And the data kind of backed it up. And, and you know, correlation isn't causation, as they say. But, you know, in one year when they say there was a murder and 15 people were investigated and five were wrongly accused and you see the floodgates open to America, you know, it, it's interesting anecdotal evidence backed up by numbers that show it wasn't just what we commonly know about the great wave of, of migration, that there were really local micro stories that also contributed to people's very personal decision to, you know, get on a donkey for a week or two, go to Naples and sit around for a few days and then wait for a hellacious journey on a ocean liner across the ocean. So uh, there was a lot to why people left. We had basically cataloged about 1,250 immigrants we sorted them male, female, what year they left, what age they were, what their last name was. And you could see, and we have a chart in the book, basically the uptick in the trips occurred after these two 
cases of false false uh, accusations occurred. Uh, so that was really the, the first thing that we noticed was that the, the data backed up all of the stuff that he had been hearing. The, the second big thing that we noticed was when we looked at the 1930 censuses, we could see that these people were really concentrating in very tight neighborhoods. It wasn't just that they were in South Philly or North Philly. There are blocks of Tacony quarter square miles where there's hundreds of people from Bickery. And I would say, as I've had conversations with some folks that are, you know, 75, 80, they kind of knew that everybody was a second or third cousin. And I think this gets back to the discussion that you had earlier with Patrick. When you get eight, nine, 10 generations back, you're talking about several thousand direct ancestors. And in some of these villages where there's only 10 or 20 or 30 different surnames, people that are from a village are related in, a, in what a friend of mine called a web. It's not a tree. It's There's only a certain number of these last names. And everyone in the village, if they can trace back far enough, they're all coming from the same 10, 15, 20 people. And the other thing that we had found out was we're, we're very lucky that we have all of the church records back to 1550 on a, a flash drive. So we could see not only the trees back 500 years and see that everyone was related and that everyone was coming from 20 or 30 different last names, but that these people had come into Bickery from maybe 50 other different villages. Hmm. And when I asked, when I asked Giuseppe about that, he said there were some droughts in Southern Puglia. I think everyone knows that it's, it's pretty dry down in the Salento area. And there was the pestilences in Campania. So what happened was you'd have people retreating into the, into the, the inland, which is where Bickery is, it's a very lush area. It's on top of a hill. And, uh, you know, I think for people avoiding plagues and looking for water, it was a pretty nice place. So you saw a large amount of migration into the village and then intermarriage basically for 400 years. And then a large group of this family basically got on a boat and went to, you know, three blocks in Tacony, North Philly, and, you know, a couple of blocks either way of past Yonk Avenue in South Philly. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I was doing some research on the history of the town before we came on. You know, it's it's really quite close to the border that Puglia shares with Campania and Molise and, uh, you know, that sort of very mixed area there where you get a lot of cultural back and forth, uh, particularly because in the old days in the Kingdom of Two Sicily, the provincial borders were different. Yep. And so, you you know, we, we think of them now as much more separated than they are, but there's a lot of cultural back and forth. And like you say, a lot of back and forth between movements of people. I mean, that's like in my family, it took us a long time to break the mystery of my grandfather was born in and, and emigrated from a town near my grandmother's town in Southern Campania in the province of Salerno. And we could never find his ancestry, but beyond him only to find that his dad came from Basilicata. And, you know, when you think about it, those areas, yeah, there are borders, but they're really porous borders. And culturally, they're all, they're all very similar. And as I was reading the history of the town, 
it was interesting from our perspective, because obviously we're also interested in the history of the two Sicilies, that Bicari was a site of a of an anti-unification rebellion put down with a lot of bloodshed yes. in, uh, in the years afterwards. And it, it seems to me, from the little that I've been able to find, that there was a lot of kind of government reprisal there to kind of try to crack down and yes. bring bring the town into line, if you will. Uh, can you tell us about the events that you, you mentioned that kind of inspired so much uh, emigration from this little place? Yeah, so so I, I think the events relate to what you had discussed because there were two murders of some folks where, you know, sort of hot-headed fights involved about something and justice had to be served and there were no real... I mean, it was just a different world. There weren't cameras everywhere and all of that stuff. So they needed to pin the blame on something. And they basically railroaded, in the case of the first uh, murder, my great-grandfather's brother, wow. uh, Michelangelo Lucera, uh, served 20 years for a murder that he didn't commit. Wow. And uh, the and supposedly in the 50s or 60s, the murderer confessed on his on his deathbed, you know, long after uh, Michelangelo had died. Uh, but that was the first one. And then the second one was an, another one where there was a fight and someone got stabbed and uh, they interrogated about 20 different people, uh, including uh, his other two brothers, Gennaro and uh, Quirico. And uh, literally after the investigations ended, these folks were on the boat. And you can see in the books that my cousin Giuseppe wrote, where he goes through the discussions of the trials and who's being interrogated you can see those people on the ship manifests shortly thereafter. That's pretty amazing, really. Yeah. You know, when you can relate real statistics, as you say, real real source material to the stories that come down through family, through lore, through legend and stuff like that, it, it, it gives you a whole new perspective on your ancestry and the immigrant experience. And, you know, because, yeah, you can hear stories, but it's really kind of very conceptual until you can put fact behind it. And, I don't know. I feel like it, it makes you feel like part of something much more substantive when you can yes. tie this to, to validate the fact, you know, prove the legend. Exactly. And that's why I subtitled the book uh, A Story of Big Data Genealogy, because I do believe, you know, the Italian-American genealogy has lagged uh, some of the other areas, you know, that the United Kingdom obviously has fantastic records. My wife's a, a Wallace and they have tremendous records due to the land. But I think we're at the point now where uh, we're getting enough data in these databases where people can start doing other analyses of things like that and really tease out some things that uh, may not have been so obvious several years ago. And and I would add to that, I think some of the things that you're seeing with respect to artificial intelligence are really going to make Italian-American and Italian history much more accessible than it's been in the past uh, my cousin Giuseppe has a number of other books that I'm looking to help him package them for people in America, whether it's not just a direct translation, but also uh, trying to use artificial intelligence to make it more American than just a specific translation, but also find ways to tie in some of the genealogical work to some of the stuff that he's done as well to make it uh, more accessible. And I, I think the artificial intelligence stuff is going to be a godsend for for people like us that want to learn more about their past that's been largely inaccessible uh i think that's all about to open up eric i, I and all the time you know you spend perusing stuff in the new neighborhood and comments and you meet people but i'm not quite sure i know maybe pat does uh, or rosella 
What is it that you do in your professional life that has led you down this sort of strength in statistics? So I, I guess I would call myself a biofinance professional. I spent 15 years in the investment industry. I worked at a couple money management hedge funds uh, as a biotech investor. And then I switched to the other side of the table as a, as a CFO for the last 15 or so years at a couple different companies. So I think having gone through undergrad as accounting and then sort of quantitative finance degree and an MBA and a few other things, I, I became very comfortable with numbers. And to me, I, when I see words, I think of numbers and, you know, there's always going to be data there somewhere. And that was basically what led me to reach out to Giuseppe when we had, when I had helped him with the book on the monument, I said, Hey, we've got everybody cataloged here. Let's look at the numbers and see if there's a story. It always amazes me how, you know, no matter what Italian Americans do as, you know, their day job, uh, the truly passionate ones always finds a way to work their culture into the the work that they do, because this, it's almost like we're we're unfulfilled doing like the regular stuff. Yeah, we have to find a way to, you know, let the uh, the green, white and red flag fly. Yeah. You know, it's like we, we, we almost every really passionate Italian American I know has this like secret business that has everything to do with their heritage that, you know, is yes. kind of like they're like an Italian side hustle. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. I, I agree. And I think for me, the trips back to Italy are more meaningful. I was just uh, part of a little cooking group with uh, Darina's Kitchen. She has a cultural uh, heritage and cooking class from uh, Rosetta Valfortura, which is the next town over from Bicari, it's the same recipes. And and we did some trips and the ability to kind of walk into a half a dozen or a dozen towns uh, and say, yeah, my seventh great grandfather came from this town and you go into a church. I went into a church in Troya, which is a next town over from Bicari as well. And I have a an ancestor named Pellegrini, Anziano Pellegrini. And I walk into the church and it's the patron saint of Troya is St. Saint Ponziano. Yeah. And, and when you see those kind of things, you know, unless you have the passion for the work, you would, I would have never gone to Troya because I would have, wouldn't have known, but to walk into a 1200 AD Romanesque church and, and see San Ponziano, and that's the name of my seventh or eighth great grandfather is, is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. The more you learn and the more you dig and, you know, I think sometimes we, maybe it's an American line of logic or rationale. You know, we we like um, quick fulfillment, if you will. So, you know, you want to learn something, you want to kind of build the tree and be able to see it and do the trip. And I, I'm finding, like everything in Italy, we were kind of joking before uh, off mic about how you have to be adjusted to a different time frame and flexible and uh, what Dolores called Italian Zen. You have to go into Italian Zen. Yes. But when you do that, all of these mysteries then start to impact every experience you have. So it's like you, you're given a gift of reconnection uh, if you really stay through the long slog and do the work. And uh, it's, it's uh, like the gift that keeps on giving, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of us have it with our last names. I mean, I'd say uh, until I graduated from business school, I didn't even know that Lucera was a town until I, I was a young analyst at uh, on the buy side, and I went to go see a, a CFO of a company called 3M, and uh, the CFO started looking at me, and the arms are going first, and 
Then the mouse starts moving and he's like, you know, there's a town in Italy named Lucera. And to that point, I didn't know anything about it. And he's like, when I was your age, I lived in a Lucera. Wow. Two months later, a box of books comes from Lucera, Italy, about the history of the village. Wow. That was sent to me by a CFO of a Fortune 500 company, a Dow 30 company, as a gift because of that connection. That's how passionate people are. Yeah. That's an only in Italy moment. Yeah. And, and Lucera is not far from uh, Bikiri, right? Uh, well, as Patrick always says, yeah, as the crow flies, it's maybe five miles, but with all the switchbacks, it could do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's right out. next to Alberona. Yes. There's a lot of people from Lucera who came. Uh, my friend Carla, there's a lot of people from Lucera who settled in Orange, New Jersey. Yeah. From our, and the main hub was from Alberona, and Lucera's next to Alberona. Actually, at St. Rocco's in Newark, they had a feast for. Um, La Morona de Lucera. There's actually a, a, an image of the Virgin Mary. Oh, wow. A miraculous image that's kept in Lucera. Yeah, and they used to have a copy of it and everything in Newark. So. Wow. Yeah, I was in Alberona on this last trip as well. They have a beautiful uh, Templar's castle that's been converted to a BNP. And they have very good cooks. Yeah. I've never been to Alberona. I'm actually an, I'm an honorary member of the Alberona Social Club. One of my bazillion titles, Johnny. Boy. All these, all these honorary memberships and titles is perfect. I do. The only thing I know about Lucetta is that it's the last community in like the 1200s, I think. Frederick II, the yes. Holy Roman Emperor, also king of the Kingdom of Sicily at the time. There were some up- uprisings in Sicily yep. of the what had been a, a long-standing Muslim community that had shrunk over the years, um, you know, 200 years prior. But uh, all of the remaining Muslim citizens were actually sent to live in Lucera. It was created as like a stronghold for them. Yep. And it's got a very fascinating history. Not much left in terms of Muslim architecture and stuff, yeah. but a very fascinating history. The whole area does. You know, people, I think, take for granted because we talk about this all the time. You know, people that don't really know their history, they may say, oh, my family left Naples or my family came from, you know, a body, but they really mean Puglia or whatever it is. And when you get to these towns, what you don't realize is because the history is so long and rich, each of these towns has amazing stories and fascinating sights. And uh, it's not just these sleepy, you know, some of them are surely sleepy mountain towns, but even those have history and the saint and how the saint became the patron and miracles and plagues and, you know, politics. It's it's just so rich to dive into. The, The town of Lucera goes back to 320 B.C. It was set up as a Roman outpost in their efforts to encircle the Samnites. And basically they wanted to just pinch them. So they made a, a military outpost there. Uh, there's a, a amphitheater, a Roman amphitheater Colosseum. I guess the Colosseum there in Lucera is older than the one in Rome that was built around 50 AD. Wow. And then uh, the city stayed pretty well occupied until around 660 when it was sacked by the Lombards. And then it it lay dormant for a while. The the town of Bikari was actually founded by survivors of that massacre. Wow. And around 660, 700. And then the, the city pretty much laid empty until the front the Angevins showed up. Well, actually, no, since the, well, Frederick II came in, as you mentioned, uh, built the, the, the fort there, which I think at the time was one of the largest forts in Europe, uh, resettled about 50,000 uh, Muslims from Sicily. And they had a very... Uh, integrated community, uh, and it survived really well until uh, the Hohenstaufer died out and the Angevins came down from France, and and that was the end of it. And then 
uh, it kind of lay dormant again for a little while and was resettled with people from Provence, France. And there's actually two towns near Vicari, Fayetto and Shell San Vito, where they have a Franco-Provencal Italian dialect. Wow. And you know who's from there? Buon Appetiti, the Italian lady who cooks on the internet, and Steve Cerulli. Nonna Gina, uh, she's so cute. Yeah, she's there from fight. They're from the um Anthony Tambori. They all they're all from there. Oh wow. Well, if you look at the Pugliese dialects, they skew very French. Is that right? Yeah, in uh in, that's so, one way of looking at it. <laughs> in, Either I'm skew French serious. or Chinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chinese that the mamata. Okay. In 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 Molese, the numbers are yeah, a doy trois. In in French, it's un deux trois. There's many like very French sounding words. Vatten, and we say vatten. It's the same exact word in French. Is that right? That's amazing to me. I had no idea. If you examine the, I mean, obviously not everything. Some of the stuff I'll admit is a little out there. You know, Alberto Warv. Is that Greek? I don't know. I don't know. But is 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 Puglia where France meets Greece? Is that the next book? Oh, (laughs) could be. Patrick. Yeah, that's very good. In Puglia in body, especially, we do have a very famous saying that tends to piss off the French. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, of course. You're going to have to translate that one. If in Paris they had the sea, it would be a small body. Wow, I never heard that. Oh, yeah, yeah, get some real riled up. That's definitely <laughs> That's definitely a T-shirt. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, I, I'd love to introduce that to our French friends. Well, if 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 Puglia is where France meets Greece, Philadelphia is where Bikuri meets the United States. Tell us a little bit about the community there that you grew up in. It sounds to me a lot more like some of the places that we explore that are, you know, uh, Rosetto, Pennsylvania, where all of the citizens came from Rosetto in Calabria, ended up in one town, intermarried. But from what you've described, it sounds like the Bicaresi in Philadelphia stayed amongst themselves. What was the neighborhood like growing up and what is it like now? Yeah, so so Philadelphia obviously had a very strong Italian-American community. I think it was lucky in a lot of regards because it largely avoided the quote-unquote urban renewal. So there wasn't, um, you know, you didn't have a lot of the problems that you had in, in some of the other cities where they put an interstate right through the heart of the community. And I, I think as a result of that, from the work that I had done the, uh, and what I'd seen personally, the Italian American community continues to exist, you know, not the way it used to, it's, it's like many a shadow of its former self, but it's still fairly strong. I have a lot of cousins that, that still live down there and there's actually been work. Uh, there's a guy, at, I think in Toronto that wrote a book that I referenced in my book about, you know, just how durable the community was in Philadelphia. And, and I, my, you know, my take on that is it's sort of, as we say in finance, it's the 80-20 rule. I I think what I've seen in Vickery, there's probably 20, 30 villages where everybody in Philadelphia came from, and they all kind of knew it. I don't think these are onesie, twosie type situations. I think the patterns that I see in Vickery and Philadelphia probably exist for another 20 or 30 villages. And and I think that's what makes the the community so strong is they they all knew that they were second and third cousins you know, probably up until the 50s and 60s. And and I think, you know, obviously there's been new immigrants that have come in Philadelphia and are kind of carrying the next leg of, of the American dream. But a lot of the Italian-Americans moved to South Jersey, uh, where my most of my family lived in the suburbs, 
you know, where we had moved. I actually, uh, you know, there was a lot more people that were Italian American than went to my high school, uh, you know, looking back 30 years ago than I may have realized back then. You know, it's obviously a passionate community. I, I did go to the NFC championship game and I went to one of the, the LCS games that the Phillies played in. And I, I can't think of a better place to watch a game. And I think <laughs> as, as I'm look as I'm looking through the stands, now that I've written this book and done all this stuff, I, I just see tens of thousands of cousins in those stands. That's you know? Well, let me, I, it's for those who are not sports fans. It's, it's amazing to hear a Philadelphia sports fan describe the best fan base, because I think the rest of us outside of Philadelphia, uh, <laughs> the Philadelphia fan base is famous for its, yeah, I know. Infamous. Colorful, yeah, infamous is the right word. Yeah, I think it's the the illustrative example. Is that, didn't they burn down part of the stands in Veterans Stadium one day during a loss? I don't know if it was the Eagles. Well, there or... there was a jail in Veterans Stadium. There was, yeah, there sure uh, was. Yeah, I think in the late '60s they threw snowballs at at Santa Claus. <laughs> it's a very very boisterous fan base for sure. Yeah. Philly's got a, a an infamous reputation, but it's and a they're, great. They're all paisans. If they're all paisans, it's got to be partially because. As you point out, the neighborhoods survived urban renewal unscathed. Yeah, that, that's my view. The culture in people's minds where maybe you're physically in in South Jersey, but I think a lot of people still, uh, you know, think of themselves as being from South Philly and they go back on Sundays for the for the Eagles <laughs> and, uh, you know, come to the Phillies games. I think people forget people that don't know that aren't from around here don't realize Philadelphia is right across the river from New South Jersey. So it's a pretty natural movement. You know, that, that border yeah. doesn't really mean much. But you no. but your your point about the urban renewal is amazing because we talk so much on the show and this idea and Pat's a big uh, kind of proponent of it that, you know, people left these neighborhoods because they were aspirational. And I think the more I learn about Italian America over the course of my career, traveling the country at NIAF, but really even more so now with the show, interviewing people from all over the country, our work with Greetings from Italian America going all over the place. I actually think the reason people left really was a lot of these urban renewal schemes because people say to me, you know, all the time, oh, Philly's still such a great neighborhood and Boston's still such a great neighborhood and St. Louis is so thoroughly Italian in the hill. And when you look, those are the places where the communities or the priests that they fought against running highways through. Whereas here, yeah. all of our neighborhoods, uh, it was, yeah, I mean, right. we talk about it a lot. Moses, uh, I think some people would say, and I, we would agree, I would agree, sort of snaked the, the highway system through Italian neighborhoods to try to root out uh, the mob. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. Robert Moses. Um, that's, that's, that's not even an episode. That's a series. Yeah. Um, when they were when they were planning the the Eisenhower administration urban renewal, part of it was that they felt that organized crime in Italian neighborhoods would be broken up if they could break up the neighborhood and force the Italians to integrate into suburbia. There's also theories out there that the Democratic strong voting blocks, the blue collar blue collar Catholic um, voting blocks in in cities like New York and Boston, Philadelphia, that was Italian and Irish and Polish, and that combo. That stronghold the Democrats had, there was also a desire politically by sectors of American politicians to break up those blue-collar Catholic ethnic neighborhoods, thinking that they would be able to break up the solid votes, the solid voting blocks that the Democrats had. So there, there's a lot of backstory that goes into um, what were the factors behind urban renewal. 
I, I think we could, I mean, we always talk about doing a series. I think we took a very long time to prepare, but I think that it's a huge question because it's part of our migration from, from Italy to American urban centers and from American urban centers into suburbia. And it calls into question, It's you know, I think when we started this project, when we came on, at least for me and maybe you, Pat, and Ro, I don't know your take, um, you know, you, you come from, your, your people came to a neighborhood in Brooklyn that was just decimated by the highway. I mean, all of that South Brooklyn, the BQE is a giant gaping hole through it. They actually, you know, dug down and it's, it's, it's still to this day, there's uh, plans to sort of reunite these disparate parts of Brooklyn that have this giant chasm through them. But I, I think we owe kind of a, I don't want to say an apology, but a reconsideration of sort of the opinion that people were, for the most part, leaving these places out of some sort of shame or aspiration, because I, I do think there was a conscious effort to break up Italian neighborhoods. And in the cities where leadership fought back, we see these thriving, you know, they've, sh they've shrunk, obviously, like all ethnic neighborhoods, but they're much healthier than ours. What's interesting about the highway in Brooklyn, particularly, you know, uh, it's talking about my people. And when we came to America, everybody uh, started out in Carroll Gardens. And the highway pretty much divides Carroll Gardens. Like it go, it just goes straight through that area in Brooklyn. And it, you know, it's it's so interesting that it's such a, a like a highly desirable neighborhood now. And at that time, you couldn't pay people to live there. Yeah. You know, yeah. people left as fast as they could and came to Bensonhurst, which see, which at, at the time was was a little bit suburban for them. I think that a lot of people who write about it that are removed, that put it all on the Robert Moses type of urban planners, I think that they don't understand unless they lived it. These tenements, I spent the early years of my life in one and they weren't necessarily comfortable. My grandmother's house, uh, my mother's house, which was upstairs from my aunt, was a, a better built house than the house my grandmother was in. And um, I remember the bathroom in the hall. That's a reality. You know, yeah. um, the bath was downstairs and my grandmother and my aunt shared it. I mean, like they weren't, you know, it was they were wood framed houses. They were very steep stairs. You know, uh, coming to suburbia was like hitting the lottery because it was just it was more comfortable. Especially Carroll Gardens. We, we've romanticized Carroll Gardens today because of the, the brownstones and how uh, so many celebrities live there. People don't really understand that those have all been renovated, you know, back in back when Nonna and my bees Nonna were living there. You had a you had a bathtub in the kitchen. Yeah. You know, you had the the tiny front yard uh, or or a very small backyard. You had five. Uh, it was it, they were essentially small apartment buildings because there, there were five apartments and it was very crowded at the uh, at that time. So. You know, it was a it was an enclave. It was a neighborhood full of your own people. But like you said, it wasn't necessarily comfortable. And, you know, Ro, you bring up you bring up a great point, because in a lot of towns in Italy that are selling houses for a euro, the town isn't so much depopulated as the old part of town is depopulated. Right. Because it's cheaper and easier today to build a beautiful brand new house on the outskirts of the town, a modern, convenient house with things like garages and, you know, air conditioning and stuff like that than it is to go into the middle of an ancient Italian town where there's a house from 1700 or 1300 and there's um, stone walls that could cut, repel an invading army and try to modernize it. And I think that people just don't realize that 
it's just easier sometimes to start from scratch. So romantically, oh yes, the you know these beautiful Italian medieval town centers. Now some places like Molfetta and and Body Vecchia, they were able to renovate them, and now they're kind of these posh, well-to-do hipster type areas. But in these little towns in the middle of nowhere in Italy, there's nobody running in with their money saying, let's redo um, the ancient city center. I want to like spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to build my dream home there. And I think the same, I think a lot of it can be said because let's say downtown Jersey City, which was the uh, the Italian ground central for my life. My mother's family all left those houses and hipsters came in and spent Brinks trucks full of money to make them the hip, beautiful, comfortable places they are today. But for that amount of money or for even less, you could have gone out to the suburbs and built a new house. So I think there's multifaceted. I think that's so important why Eric has done. I, and I'm, I'm not just blowing the sunshine because of, of my personal connection to Eric. I don't think there's anything better that has ever come out of this podcast and the work that he's done. And when I saw it, I said, we are on a whole different level because he took, you know, um, that's why I get so disgusted when I see us portrayed as idiots in pop in in popular culture and media, because what Eric did is absolutely brilliant. I mean, he does statistical analysis far beyond my comprehension to map and migrate a population that probably for the most part was barely literate. And it shows the accomplishments that we've made as a people here in America. Our natural intelligence, given the opportunity for education, just explodes. And it shows that we are a smart, intelligent, educated, boxing above our weight population. And I think that that's what Eric has done. I think it really has blown me away because it's a statistical analysis. He's been able to rewrite the, the history of Beakity's population in Philadelphia based on anecdotes and statistics. And I think this is a whole new level because I thought, you know, how many towns in Italy, um, there's so many kids with no jobs or unemployed. Their town halls are full of documents, genealogical documents, birth records, death records, marriage records, all other kind of records. If we had a pool of all this stuff put online, think of how much has been unearthed from doing what what Eric has done. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and that's why I, I completely agree, and and I'm truly humbled by the the uh, the compliment uh, from you guys. It, it really means a lot. Uh, but but I'll say that's in the beginning of the episode. That's why I started talking about artificial intelligence. I think that is going to be the key uh, that's going to unlock a lot of all of this because. You know, I speak Italian reasonably well, probably not as good as the rest of the folks here, but it's taken me 10 years and most people don't have that kind of time. And I think with some of the machine learning, chat, GDP, and all of these things, you're not only going to be able to translate it, but you're going to remove a lot of the, the I don't want to say flowery language, but you're going to Americanize it and make it more accessible. And I think you're going to be able to merge it with other documents to create the stories that you want whether it's the story of Capitanata, Bicari, Foggia, Puglia, you know, these things just don't exist in English in a, in a big way. And I think you can, you, you know, I mean, there are stories that I'm hearing about people writing books in five seconds with artificial intelligence. And I think you're going to be able to take all of this material that, as Patrick mentioned, sits in these uh, municipal offices and all of these books that are online on Google Docs and, you're going to really be able to take our history as a culture to the next level. Have you thought about, you know, because 
I, I'm great at following you when we talk about the genealogy and the history. When we start talking about AI and Google Chat, and I'm just gone. Like I, I, I really, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to know that people are using this stuff. I hear about it when I read the news, but I don't understand any of this. Like I have, don't even know where to begin. And I'm sure that there's a segment of the audience out there that's like me, and really, you know, uh, I don't even have Siri turned on on my phone, so AI is completely <laughs> foreign to me. Um, have you thought about maybe writing an instruction manual or a guidebook? I, I would love, yeah, I would love to be able to do that. And if there's anyone out there listening that knows AI, feel free to reach out to me on Facebook. I'd love to think about how we could use that technology to further the Italian and Italian American heritage. Uh, you know, I know little bits about it. It's it's on my list for the summer to do a um, intro to chat GDP course. I see a lot of things sort of scrolling through my social feed that I, I basically have been unfollowing other stuff and following the AI stuff. Uh, so there's all kinds of things that scroll through that says five websites that you need to know about. Write a book in 30 seconds. Do this with a picture. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just starting to look into that because I, I just see an, such a huge opportunity to take our history, our culture to the next level. And like I keep saying, just make it accessible. And I think that's one of those pieces that's going to save all of these Southern Italian villages. I, one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is because we're starting to get more interest from Americans in our village. And I'll give you a, a little anecdotal story. There was a website called Bicaris Nel Mundo. You know, it's a Facebook group that when I first started following it, it had 130 people. I started, you know, using artificial intelligence, colorizing a bunch of old pictures dropping them in. And I was amazed at, and I think I mentioned this to, to Stephanie in an email a while ago, amazed at the response that you get when you take a picture, colorize it and say, this is my great grandparents, or this is my cousin. And there were all kinds of people coming out of the woodworks. The group's now over 1500 people around the world. And just this past weekend, they had a reunion in South Jersey of Bicari's Americanos. They had almost a hundred people. Wow. And that came from all of this effort. And now they're talking about, you know, I'm going back to the village in August. I think there's a dozen or so people that are coming with me. And and these are the second and third derivative effects that you, that you can have where you, you make the stories more accessible. You write the books, you give people the trees, you give them the pictures, you give them the emotion of a colorized picture. And all of a sudden, people now say, I want to see there. I want to go there. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons I do it with Bickery is they have a very good mayor. He's very open to uh, ancestral tourism. The, you know, Vickery is famous for the one euro home that was all over the, the national media. And I can tell you three or four years ago, when I was walking around the old town center, you'd look on these buildings and say, Vendees, Vendees, even, you know, everything was for sale. Yeah. Two or three years ago, there were scaffolds everywhere. They were repairing all of these things. I was walking through the village last week. I met a guy from... South Africa, who had bought five homes in the village and was restoring them and, and selling them. The mayor brought in 30 people of Italian American or Italian Argentinian descent from Argentina and resettled them in these homes. How about that? Those are the things you need to do to save these villages. You have to have very progressive mayors and you need to partnership with the Americans as well. You know, 2024 is going to be the year of roots tourism, and we've had a couple of meetings already about our participation as a show and what's going on. And of course, you know, it's the Italian government, so it's it's obviously complicated. But institutional Italy is obviously aware 
that's put resources behind this idea of roots tourism, bringing people back to these towns. You see the change, like you mentioned, with these dollar buildings and, and some of the great success stories there. I was reading an article the other day about Naples. I think I'm going to get the numbers maybe wrong. Before COVID uh, 2019, the last uninterrupted year, Naples had like 4.4 million, like 3.7 or 4.8, whatever, somewhere in between that. So between so like three and a half to five million foreign tourists this last year there were 11 million people that came through the city of naples wow. that's incredible wow. i was just there last weekend you couldn't walk it's crazy yeah i mean then it's becoming it's becoming problematic in places like the spanish quarter which is you know some of the smallest it's called the spanish quarters because of the spanish troops quartered there but it's really a greek layout i mean it's ancient ancient streets that have never been widened so yeah i mean it's it's a whole new life for the south of Italy. And we've been talking about this for years before COVID and how Instagram has changed. And But I think reconnecting people with those places, it's easier than ever. And as you point out, now AI and all these things are going to be added on. I, I was having a conversation with my father-in-law last night because my mother-in-law is Tuscan and she and my wife got invited to a Tuscan event in the city. They couldn't make it. And I was saying, like, my wife's family's not big on kind of participating and stuff like that. But I was telling my father-in-law that Brendan, who works with us at the Constituting Orders from Buffalo, and there's a community, an old community, of people from his town, which is Pescaceroli in Abruzzo. And my father-in-law came over in the 60s. Not many people came. He didn't grow up in a neighborhood with other Pescaceroli. And he was so fascinated by the prospect of going to Buffalo with Brendan to meet this community that's been there for like 100-something years. And I saw an interest in him that I'd never see in this kind of stuff. And I think... The smaller the world gets and the more technology becomes a part of our lives, people are looking for the authentic and there's nothing more authentic than your town of origin. And uh, hopefully there's leaders like you and other towns and other comune that are going to help to make this kind of stuff a reality. And, and hopefully your example and your strategy as you continue to grow it, uh, hopefully we can help make that available to other people who are inspired to do the same because it does take an army. But, but I, I think there's a willing force out there, and I think you've made a great contribution to inspiring and directing how that work goes. So congratulations on a great book. How, how does the audience get the book if they want it? Well, like everything in Italy, it's complicated. You know, we published it in Italy. You can get it on Amazon.it, but because of the, the book number, it, it has to come from that. I don't understand it, but that's the That's where I, I ordered it on Amazon, Punto Eat. Now it's it's bilingual, am I correct? Yes, it is. It's in English and Italian. Yes, that's awesome. Let me just m mention one thing. Uh, you know, I have a number of them, and uh, which I bought directly from the publisher. I can uh, give them to people. There's a suggested donation of of thirty bucks per book. All of it's going to the town of Bickery Cultural Association, uh, and we created a prize for the um, the students to write an essay on immigration. And uh, I think in 2024, we're going to give out a couple thousand bucks uh, to one of the classes uh, based all on the proceeds of the book. So if anyone wants to get it directly from me, all of the proceeds go to the Vickery's uh, Cultural Association. God bless you. That's awesome. That's an awesome pursuit. When I say we have the gold standard of podcast listeners, this is the perfect example. That's very true. You tell me who has what, who we have. I, I, all of you, because you know, I talk to everybody. Half these podcast listeners, I talk to on a very re regular basis. That's true. 
John always makes jokes. Oh, he gives everybody his number. He talks. Yeah, because I got, I've, I've, I've never met anything but the best that came out of our podcast. Patrick is the listener liaison. Yes, he is. Yeah, because we, I really, really, we really do have the gold standard. And, you know, I'm proud of what we do because, you know, Italian Americans are shown as uh, bimbos and baboons and, and idiots and imbeciles so much on popular, in popular culture. And this, this shows that we are the people of Michelangelo and of Dante and of Raphael. And this is who we are. Yeah. And that's why I'm so I'm so proud of this. But the way that you show support, ladies and gentlemen, is you go and you now for those some of you don't have the money, don't worry about it. But some of you are sitting on your communion money, the confirmation money. You still haven't even taken out the envelopes. <laughs> it's covered in dust. Buy the book. Give the book. Give the book to your non-Italian friend who's interested in genealogy. Promote what Eric is doing. Tell people about it. Go out, buy the book. Donate to your local library. Donate to the libraries in your county. Because if we don't support Italian-American academia, this stuff is not going to happen. If you were blown away by what, what Eric has done, the best way you can show your support is by buying a copy. That That's how you you encourage people to do the next chapter because the next book is going to be on Cesar Cilento. That's right. That's right. Oh, you must be thrilled about that one. Yeah, I'm because I'm fine. Listen, genealogy is a drug. It is. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, totally it's, it's an absolute drug. When I started to go back further and further in my genealogy, I was blown away by towns that I had ancestors from in the 1700s. I would have had no, not, no idea at all. Yeah, it's addictive. Yeah. And every Italian American, you know, people from Italy laugh at me. Oh, ha, ha. I was like, no, you have the exact same thing as me. You were born there. You just don't know your genealogy. Right. Yeah, it's true. That's it. I'm done. John's going to yell at me because I talk too much. Never. I He's never. going to put me never in the naughty, the naughty corner. I'm so used to you by now. There's no naughty corner. I, I... Thanks, John. <laughs> that that was a, what a compliment. Whoa. Wow. wow. <laughs> I'm used to you by now. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. What, that's, what, that's what disgusted wives say to their husbands for 50 years. <laughs> well, with the, with I'm used to you by now. How many more years I got stuck with you anyway? <laughs> I, I know that feeling from my wife oh. <laughs> for sure. Good thing to call doesn't listen thank god she doesn't yeah i'm sure she feels the same way about me but needless to say as used to you as i am is as much as i love these conversations your inspiring choice to bring eric on is yet another great episode so thank you for that eric thank you for the great work and everybody out there i do hope you guys go out and get the book and uh, i hope it inspires you to do the same thing find your town and if you know your town or you found your town double down and dig deep and uh you're giving a lot of people the gift of connectivity and belonging in a time when that's a very, very valuable gift. So from all of us, the Italian American podcast, we hope you've enjoyed the show this week. Put the macaroni on. We're coming home. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born an Italiano.